0: you want to open up your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 6. If you have one of the pew Bibles there on the back, um, I believe it's page 534. It's funny that we still call them pew Bibles even though there's <laughs> no pews, but seat Bible just doesn't quite sound this good. Um, if you want to, yeah, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. So we come this morning um, to Isaiah chapter 6, which we've normally been going through the Gospel of John. And I know there are some people that were anticipating even uh, continuing in John's Gospel this morning, but we're going to have to wait a little bit longer as the Lord sort of pressed upon me the importance of this passage in God's Word. And we come this morning in Isaiah chapter 6 to a very familiar passage for some of us, I think. If you're familiar with R.C. Sproul at all, this was one of his favorite passages. He wrote a whole book on this passage. And so it's a very familiar passage for some of us. But my prayer this morning is that we would come to this passage in the Old Testament with fresh eyes. With eyes that may have heard this account before, this vision of Isaiah's... um, account, and encounter with the God of the universe and the Holy One of Israel. But my prayer this morning is that as we read about Isaiah's vision, as he encounters the Holy King over all the world, and we see the response of Isaiah in his utter undoneness before this God of holiness, and the response of the angel and bringing atonement, that our response and our experience this morning might be the same as Isaiah's. That as we go to God's Word and we come with reverence and awe before Him, that we would have a similar experience this morning, that we would behold the holy God of the universe, and that we would, through that, have a clearer vision of our sinfulness, our unholiness, but more than that, the perfect and atoning work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today on this day of worship and rest, where we are reminded of the God of the universe, who alone is worthy of our worship. And we come to this great passage of your word, where we see in clear detail the holiness of you, that you are holy, Holy, holy. And we come this morning recognizing our unholiness, that as we stand before you in and of ourselves, we are lost and we are undone as Isaiah was. But we come also this morning knowing and remembering the gospel of grace that it is by the work of Christ alone that we are able to come to the throne of grace, that we might worship you and serve you all of our days. And so we pray this morning as we come to hear your word proclaimed. that you would open the eyes of our hearts and by the power of your spirit this morning, you would enlighten our minds, opening the eyes of our hearts that we might see and understand the glory of the triune God of the universe, the greatness of our sin and misery, and the grace of the gospel of Christ. This is only possible because of your work. And so we ask and pray that you would do these things by your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we see very early on in this passage that the king of Judah is dead. We read in verse 1, it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, and even though the earthly king of the people is dead, we see that the heavenly king, the king of kings, is still seated upon his throne, (laughs) right? It's no coincidence that we have these things together, that even though the earthly king is dead, Isaiah is given a great vision of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that he has not left his throne, but he is very much reigning and ruling for all eternity, And so we're going to look this morning at three things in this vision that Isaiah sees of the Lord in his holiness. First, we're going to look at the holiness of God in verses 1 through 4. We're going to see this very clear picture that Isaiah sees of God in his threefold holiness. Secondly, we're going to look at Isaiah's response to his vision of God's holiness. We're going to see that Isaiah does not boast himself in proud or whatever... (laughs) He's not proud, he's not boastful before this Lord that he is he recognizes his sin and misery and is undone before him and so we'll see the guilt of sin in verse 5 and then finally we'll look at the atoning work of Christ in verses 6 through 7. So in verse 1 we see Isaiah has this vision of the Lord. He is taken up if you will into the highest heaven. Now, Isaiah was a prophet, and prophets were those that spoke forth the word of the Lord. They were those that were commissioned by the Lord. They were to go and speak to the people the word of the Lord. But we read in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah is given a vision. He is enthroned. He is given this picture of God who is enthroned in the highest heaven. This throne room, if you will, the unseen dwelling place of God. He has taken up into heaven the highest heaven where he sees the Lord, the Sovereign in all His majesty and power and authority. Now, while we know it is true that no one has seen God in His essence, right? We, we read from John chapter 4 that God is spirit, that we cannot see God, right? That's what the children catechism question says. We cannot see God, but we see throughout Scripture that God condescends to graciously reveal Himself to His people. And this is what we call theophany. It's kind of a fancy word for the manifest presence of God on the earth in this temporary physical mode. So, you're saying, what is a theophany? That's a fancy word. Well, just think about these different instances in the Scripture, right? You go to the book of Exodus, and you read about the burning bush, right? That Moses sees this bush that is on fire, and yet it is not consumed. And this fire, this holy, fiery flame, is a theophany. It is God's manifest presence before Moses, or if you're familiar with when God leads the people out of Egypt, He leads them by a pillar of, of smoke and fire, leading the people through the wilderness. Now God is not smoke, God is not fire, but He manifests Himself in this way to show and lead His people. Or if you're familiar with the temple, when it is consecrated to the Lord, the glory cloud fills the temple. So that no one can even see inside of it because of this smoke that fills this holy temple. And so we see here in Isaiah chapter 1 a similar thing going on. Isaiah sees this vision of the holiness of the king, the Lord of Israel, and he is seated upon his throne, high and lifted up, and his glory is filling this heavenly temple. This magnificent, wonderful vision. And we read in verse 2 that He is not alone. The Lord is not alone in this heavenly temple, that He is surrounded by these holy angels that are calling to one another. They are, he is surrounded by these seraphim, these six-winged angels, or you can even translate this word burning ones. They, they appear as if they're on fire before this holy God. They are servants of the Lord, the great King. And it's very interesting. We read in verse 2 that they have six wings, these six winged angels. And we see that with two of these wings, they cover their face, with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they fly. There's a lot of questions that many people have when they come to this vision. Why are they covering their face? Why are they covering their feet? What is the meaning of all of these wings and all of the, of the areas that they're covering? What's amazing when you think about it is that even these burning ones, these perfect holy angels who have no sin, perfect, holy, created angels burning with the glory of God must still hide their face from this Holy One. Not even they can behold the holiness of this God in His holy temple. And many questions come up, why are their feet covered? Well, if you remember in the book of Exodus, just as Moses had to remove his sandals on the holy ground as he approached this burning bush, so these seraphim must cover their feet before the presence of the Lord that their face must be covered, their feet must be covered to even be in the presence of this holy and triune God. And we see in verse 3 that they're calling one to another this great, eternal, unending song. And they're calling to one another as we read in verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. This great song that we even kind of sang about a little bit this morning, and we see at the center of this hymn, the center of this unending hymn of praise, is what? It's the holiness of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. Now what do we think of when we think of holiness? We think of the unapproachable brightness of the glory of God. His separated, his otherness, that God in his essence is not like you and I. He is not a creature that is changeable. He is God, the creator who is unchangeable. And he is holy in his essence. Holiness is not something that God has. It's not a a quality or character that he possesses and it can kind of go up and down as he feels like it. No, holiness is what God is. He is holy. Not only in his glory, but in his total and unique moral majesty. <laughs> He's perfect. He doesn't have any sin like your eye. He is perfect, and he is holy. But we see here and something very interesting that I think we need to draw out, and is that this word holy is repeated three times in this eternal hymn. And this really comes out in the Hebrew because if you want to say something is the utmost or is the most pure, or if you want to really emphasize the totality of something, you do that not by adding kind of an adjective to it by saying this is pure gold, but you just repeat the word and you say it's gold gold, (laughs) which doesn't make a lot of sense in English. But in Hebrew, that's emphasizing the purity, the totality of that thing. So you use repetition to emphasize the totality of what it is. But we see in the song of these angels, when they are describing the holiness of God, they don't just say that God is holy. They don't even say that he is holy, holy, but they say that he is holy, holy, holy. (laughs) He is the most holy. There's no there's nothing more holy than this triune God. Or as I like to say, he is the thrice holy God. <laughs> there's nothing more holy as one commentator said, it's a super superlative. There's nothing more holy than to be holy, holy, holy. He is the one who alone dwells in unapproachable light. He is infinite in his perfection and glory. As Isaiah will say later on in this book, He is the Holy One of Israel. The One that is holy over all His creation and whose glory fills the whole earth. But what's amazing is what we see in verse 4 is that the only response of creation to the holiness of this One is to shake and tremble. We read in verse 4 that the foundations of of the thresh, the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. Now, I work at an architecture firm during my week, and the foundations are the most important part of the building. If you don't have a good foundation, your building will fall over. It's the thing that's going to go down into the bedrock and keep you steady when there's wind blowing or earthquakes or all these things. But we see in this verse that even the foundations themselves are shaking at the voice of this holy God. This should remind us of Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. We see that when the glory cloud envelops the mountain, even the mountain itself shakes before the voice of God. But as we go on in our passage, we see that it is not only the heavenly temple that shakes before the voice of God, but Isaiah himself is trembling before Him. And this leads us to our second point this morning, the guilt of sin. Now, we we didn't study the first couple chapters of the book of Isaiah, but if you were to go look just one chapter before this, you would see that the message that Isaiah has brought to the people up to this point, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, has not been a very happy, positive message. It's one of coming destruction. The people are living in their wickedness. At the, at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord compares the people of Israel to a vineyard. That there's this sense in which the people of Israel, these people that God has set apart, He has he has. He compares it to making a vineyard that he's he's removed all the rocks away. He's built a wall. He's built a a wine press, and he's looked for Israel to bring to bring forth fruit, but it has only brought forth sour grapes. And we see that in the early parts of Isaiah and Isaiah chapter five, we see the people have only been wicked. They have not served God. They have not served Yahweh. They have served themselves. And in Isaiah chapter 5 especially, we see Isaiah begin to pronounce woes on the people of Israel. He pronounces six woes on the wickedness of the people. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Six times Isaiah pronounces these woes. A great place to look is just on the page prior, um, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We see Isaiah's pronouncing woes on the people of Israel because they have sinned, they have been wicked, and they have fallen short of the glory of God. But what's amazing about our passage this morning as you come to verse 5, we see that in the presence of the holy God, Isaiah pronounces a woe upon himself. That this seventh, final, climactic woe does not fall upon the people of Israel, but falls upon Isaiah as he beholds the holiness of God. He says in verse 5, Woe is me. Woe is me. Not woe is them, not woe is the people of Israel for their sin, but woe is me. We know that this is the only right response of sinful creatures before a holy God. Not pride, not boasting, not trying to negotiate with God, saying, well, I did this good thing over here, you know, or I'm not as bad as the people of Israel. You don't hear Isaiah trying to bargain with God or negotiate. He falls down and says, woe is me. I am lost. Or as the older translations will say, I am undone. I am undone. Not only here does Isaiah have a personal sense of his guilt and his utter inadequacy before this God who is holy, but he has a clear recognition of his own sinfulness. He's not looking out into the world or looking at others saying, look how sinful they are. He is made aware of his own sinfulness and lostness before this holy God. And he recognizes that he is sinful. Now, it's important for us to remember, Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord. He was not some... You know, wicked and sinful person that was out doing whatever he wanted. He was commissioned and called by the Lord. He was anointed to speak the words of the Lord, and yet, when he has this clear vision of the Lord and His holiness, he is undone before him. And this reminds us in many way, of Simon Peter, if you remember in Luke chapter five, Simon Peter is on a boat with Jesus. And Jesus miraculously causes all of these fish to be caught and brought into the boat to the point where the boat is almost sinking. And what does Peter say when he sees this miracle of our Lord? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He falls down before the Lord and echoes, like Isaiah said, depart from me. I am sinful, I am unclean, I am undone. And so this is our response in our sin, right? When we see the holiness of God, when we sing that song, holy, 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 our response is to see our utter unholiness. To have a clear vision of God's righteousness is to have a clear vision of our unrighteousness. That we, like Isaiah, recognize that holiness cannot dwell with unholiness, that sinful people cannot dwell in the midst of a holy God. And yet, and yet, this God of infinite holiness and justice is also a God of infinite mercy. And that brings us to our third point this morning in verses 6 through 7. In verses 6-7, through we see this picture, this foreshadowing, this foretaste, this prefiguring of the atoning work of Christ. We see a pointing forward to and and a picture of the divine provision that is made for sinners in this picture of the burning coal. This picture of the burning coal. We see... That one of the seraphim in verse six, a ministering spirit of God, takes a live burning coal from the white hot fiery altar of the heavenly temple and he touches it to the prophet's lips. And the prophet is not harmed. There's no pain, there's no burning. But this coal is so hot, so intense, that even this burning angel must carry it with a pair of tongs. And yet, there is no pain for the prophet. As one commentator said, the coming of this angel is not to hurt the prophet, but to heal him. Not to cauterize his lips, but to cleanse his lips. And we see that it is this burning fire alone that can bring purification. It is only through this altar of intercession and sacrifice where atonement for sin can be made. And this pictures for us the work of Christ and the atoning provision that has been made for sinners by the Son of God and His sacrificial death for us. That this God who is holy condescends in covenant mercy and forgiveness to his people. This one, as we read in verse 1, who is high and lifted up, humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on flesh to forgive our iniquity and to cleanse our sin that this is the only way for sinners to be made right with the one and only God who is holy. And we see that the only way that this is possible is not by us acting, but by God himself acting, taking upon flesh in the person and work of Christ, that the glory that Isaiah sees in verse 1 this one who is seated, seated upon the throne, high and lifted up, is none other than the glory of the Son. We actually have this confirmed in John chapter 12. We don't have time to look at it this morning, but John is, Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 53, and then John tells us that the glory that Isaiah saw was the glory of Christ. The glory of the Son, the one who is high and lifted up. But he is not only the one who is high and lifted up, as we read about in Isaiah chapter 53, we read about it this morning, he is also the one who must suffer and die. You go to Isaiah chapter 53, it says that the servant of the Lord, the one that will come in the latter days, will be high and lifted up. But in Isaiah chapter 53, we also see that He is the one, as we read, on whom our sin will be placed. He will undergo the suffering for His people. He will undergo the judgment for our sin. And in the New Testament, we see that it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who is the suffering servant promised in Isaiah 53 that would accomplish this cleansing sacrifice and thereby make a way into God's holy presence. It is by His sacrificial death on the cross, taking upon Himself our uncleanness, that is how our guilt is removed. He has taken upon Himself our iniquity. By His undergoing the fiery wrath and judgment that our sin deserves, That is how the white hot coal of God's holiness might touch our lips and yet not consume us, (laughs) right? Not to heal, I mean, not to hurt us, but to heal. Not to kill us, but to cleanse us. And just as with the fire and the burning bush, it is the fire of God's holiness that does not consume. This is what we see in the burning coal that touches the prophet's lips, So that we might hear not the pronouncement of judgment that we deserve rightly because of our sin, but the pronouncement of pardon. Not the pronouncement of guilt, but of grace. And so we can say with the angel, in a sense, behold, for all those who are in Christ united to him by faith, your sin is is taken away, your guilt is fully atoned for. That is what the believer can say in Christ. That's the only way our sin can be removed is if the sacrifice of Christ pays the penalty for our sin. And the beauty of what we see here, even hundreds of years before Christ is is born, is the full and complete pardon can be made in the one and only sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. It's the only way that sinners can be reconciled to the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. So this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, these prefigurements of the gospel of grace, and we see That even though Isaiah is made aware of his sinfulness before this holy God, God makes a way for him to dwell in his holy presence for his guilt to be taken away and his sin atoned for. And so as we think about this passage and how we can bring application, we see here a call for both unbelievers and believers, for both those that know the Lord and worship Him, and those that do not know the Lord and have not been saved by His grace. And the call is to behold the holy God of the world. Right? Behold the holy God of the world. Even though you and I will not be given this vision that Isaiah was. We read about it here, that even though we cannot see God, we know that He is holy and we are not. As the psalmist says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand? Who could stand before the Lord, the God who is holy, 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 and say, I deserve to be here. This is my rightful place. And the answer is no one. No one can stand before the holy God of the universe and say, I deserve to stand. And so we see in this passage the holiness of our triune God. He is other than us, He is separated from us, not only in His morality, He is perfect, but in His majesty, in His power, in His authority. Even the holy burning angels must hide their face from His holiness. And so for those of us that are in Christ, we can still behold the glory and holiness of God. Because it is in that that we see our only hope and salvation. And so the second thing that we can see is that as we behold the holiness of God, we are to recognize the greatness of our sin as Isaiah did. Isaiah did not come before the Lord as he saw him in his holiness and say, look how great I am. Look how much I've done. Or he did not turn to another person and say, I'm not as bad as them. I didn't do that thing. No, he was undone before the holy God of the universe. He recognized that he himself had broke the law of God. Maybe it was unclean lips. Maybe for some of us in this room, we are unclean in other ways. We've broken God's law. Maybe it's the first commandment that we read about this morning. We have worshiped and served other gods or things that are not God. We've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We've worshiped and served ourselves before we worship and serve the God who is holy. And so when we see this vision of God's holiness, we are made clearly aware of our unholiness. And I was thinking about it this week. It's kind of like if you ever, you know, maybe you just went to the dentist or something and you're smiling in the mirror and you're thinking about, man, my teeth look really white today. You know, they look really great. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling great. And then you hold up a white piece of paper to your mouth and you recognize that your teeth are not so white. That it is only in the sight of total and complete purity that we recognize our impurity. And that is what we see when we look upon the holiness of God, even reflected in His law. He is holy. He is other than us. And when we see that, we recognize our unholiness. And so that is not a bad thing. (laughs) And it's difficult for us, it's hard for us, to let the light of the holiness of God shine in us and expose our darkness but it is for our good. As the Proverbs will say, how good and sweet are the wounds of a friend. And so when God's law exposes us, His holiness lays us bare, we are then healed by our third point this morning, the gospel of grace. That our response should not only be to behold the holiness of God, to recognize the greatness of our sin, but our final and ultimate response this morning should be to worship and serve the one who alone can atone for our sin. There's only one way that sinners can be made right before a holy God. It's not by our works. It's not by our efforts. It's not by the family that we were born into. It's not by our zeal, our our strength. It is by the work of Christ alone. He is the one that can remove our guilt Completely. As this burning coal touched the mouth of the prophet, he didn't say, Your sin is mostly taken away. Your guilt is partially removed. What did he say? Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Fully, completely, finally. Not to be brought back at a later time, not to be brought back later, but is fully and completely removed. And what's amazing is notice how the Lord ministers to the prophet at his point of confessed need. He said, my lips are unclean, and where did the burning coal touch? His lips. That we are to repent of our sins particularly. We don't just repent in general and say, well, I'm a sinner. I know I've messed up. We say, I've done this. I've broken your law here. I've transgressed here. And that is precisely where the Lord ministers to us. He brings restoration and healing. As we read this morning about repentance, He renews our repentance and by His Spirit, He gives us strength to obey His commands and law. He ministers to us at the exact point of our confessed need. And just to kind of look at all the Scriptures briefly, we see here in this passage the restoration that is brought to the prophet. And we see that throughout the Scriptures Whether it's Peter in his encounter with our Lord in Luke chapter 5, or it's the Apostle John at the end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, when they see a picture of the Holy Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, they fall down as though dead. They recognize their sin and their guilt. They fall down and say, Depart from me. I don't deserve to be in your presence. But what does our Lord say to Peter? What does our Lord say to the Apostle John? He says, Do not be afraid. Stand. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. And I died, and behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys to death and Hades. He is the one that has purchased us by his blood. He has made atonement for our sin. And so even though when we behold the holy God of the universe, and our response is to fall down before him and say, I'm unworthy, Depart from me. I cannot stand in your presence. The gracious God and Lord Jesus Christ stands and says, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Our Lord has made atonement for our sins in the gospel, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can come to him. We can confess our sin. And we can stand before God who is holy. And at the end of all things... We can join in that eternal hymn and sing with the holy angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you in our weakness, in our utter unworthiness before you, the God who created us, who gives us life and breath and everything, who sustains us every moment of every day and causes blood to course through our veins and breath to fill our lungs. And yet with that same breath, we use it to curse you. With the same motion that you've given us, we use it to follow every path of unrighteousness. And yet in your grace and mercy and in Christ, you have made a way for us to be made right with you, the holy God of the universe that we who are sinful might stand before you as righteous, not by our works, but by the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning that you would minister to us by your Spirit as the burning coal of your holiness touches us, that we would be purified and cleansed before you, Help us to remember that there's no pain for those that are in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we come before you this morning recognizing our guilt, confessing our sin, but acknowledging that a way has been made in Christ where our sin can be atoned for and our guilt removed. And we pray this morning, Lord, that by your Spirit you would strengthen us you would help us to believe this gospel of grace, resting on you alone for salvation, and looking to Christ as our only hope in life and death. We pray that you would do these things and that you would minister to us this morning by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen.